This is a Rooster Teeth production. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this supplemental episode of Black Box Down. As usual, it's Gus and Chris. Hello, Chris. Hello, Gus. But we also have a special guest with us uh, today. We've got Brian. Brian, hello. Hey, thanks for having me. Tell us why you're special. What's, <laughs> what's that? Tell us why you're special. Yeah, Brian's oh. worked with us in the past on Black Box Down, but Brian has uh, another podcast that we thought was really interesting, so we wanted to have him on. Yeah, I uh, I wrote at least one Black Box Down that I remember. The one, it was awful. It was the one where the, the plane caught fire and then they had to land it. And then everyone died on board. They couldn't get out. Oh, yeah. They couldn't get out. It was so depressing to write. It was write. really frustrating because you're like, oh, they landed. Cool. Get yeah, it, it open. A- get the door open. Come on. Saudi 163. Oh, gosh. It was such a bummer. So, yeah, I do have some uh, experience. This is my first time on Black Box Down. But, yeah, we earlier this year started Ship Hits the Fan. I named it, so you're welcome. And it's, uh, I, I would say, kind of the maritime equivalent of Black Box Down. Um, we, we look at disasters, but obviously uh, naval uh, and, and sea disasters. And it's, um, I, I write it, and uh, Charlotte McGrath and Patrick Brown are my co-hosts. And yeah, it's a, it's a lot of fun. We, we do get a little lighthearted, but we do have a hundred-year rule. So if it happened more than a hundred years ago, we'll we'll be a little we'll we'll be a little more lighthearted and and make some jokes. If it's less than that, eh, not so much. Yeah. <laughs> well, lucky for you, the Titanic, which is the one I'm sure everyone thinks of, is like at one ten at this point. So you're in the clear. <laughs> Absolutely, yes. Uh, James yes. Cameron made a movie. That old woman threw the necklace into the ocean. You're clear. Yeah. Yeah, remember when Celine Dion, I think, asked for a moment of silence at the Oscars for all the passengers on Titanic? It's like, (laughs) Celine, you didn't know anybody on the Titanic. That was still like 70 years ago at that point. They've had plenty of silence. They they processed their grief by that point. (laughs) But uh, it's a very funny podcast, but also very informative. It's great. You all somehow balance that perfectly. Hey, thanks. Yeah, it's uh, there. There are some crazy things that happen at sea. I, I, we've been sailing ships for hundreds and hundreds and I mean thousands of years really and we use them for war, we use them for fun, we use them to get around, <laughs> we use them to ram other ships. Sometimes uh, we use them to fly. Yeah. Uh, so I, I am stoked about this one. So yeah, but yeah, if you're uh, into naval stuff, uh, check it out. We do have some uh, listeners who know way more about it than we do uh, and they kind of call us with uh, to correct us sometimes, and that they call, they message me on Twitter. Uh, but that is that's totally fine. But yeah, it's it's a lot of fun, and and we we run the gamut all over the world. I try to not just do Western stuff, um, and and yeah, one of my favorites we did recently was the White Ship in uh, England. It was around twelve hundred. And it, it started, they were ferrying the future king of England back across the English Channel for, from France. Uh, well, it was the prince. And his dad's boat took off first. And the prince and his crew stuck around for a couple hours and partied. They got completely drunk and then decided they were going to race and try to beat the king back to England across the English Channel. And the ship wrecked because they were drunk and everyone died. And because the heir to the throne died, it kicked off a huge civil war for like 10 years. Yeah. Hey, can we have a moment of silence for the white ship? (laughs) (laughs) 
It's only been like 900 years. Look, there's a time and a place, guys, and it's too soon. So, (laughs) little respect. So, we wanted to do a crossover, you know, and have uh, have Brian on for a while. And, you know, we looked at a bunch of different potential incidents that we could cover. And most of them were very military-based, like aircraft carriers. And we talked for a while about, well, we, we talked about a bunch of different incidents, but in the end, we decided to maybe just do an overview of seaplanes in general. So this episode of Black Box Down, we're just going to talk about plane boats. Yeah. Or wait, wait, not pl- not P-L-A-I-N boats, P-L-A-N-E boats. <laughs> They're the opposite of plane boats, really. Yeah, fancy um, boats. Also, we have uh, the next episode. We, we actually filmed this after. So we filmed this opposite order, but the next full episode of Black Box Down we have is about a uh, seaplane that... Uh, Spoiler crashes. And that, that'll be out next week, next yeah. Thursday. But we were talking about that, and then we were like, oh, yeah, we should do this. Because I, I think seaplanes are cool. And I, well, it, it kind of got us thinking, like, when did seaplanes start? Like, who was, who was the person who was like, you know what would make this boat even better? If it had wings. <laughs> <laughs> it feels like it started in 1985 uh, with a little cartoon called Transformers. <laughs> <laughs> Well, seaplanes uh, aren't that fancy, you know. There's there well, there's very little transforming that happens with them. Uh, in a, in a broad sense, it's just a powered fixed wing aircraft that can take off on land or water. And if you think about them, like you've probably most people probably don't think a lot about the mechanics of a seaplane. But if you break it down, there there's really only two kinds of seaplanes. The first one is a float plane, which is like the name says. It's just like it, if you think about like a regular plane that has floats mounted under it, and that helps it to float. It's uh-huh. like a, like single engine propeller planes that have, you know, like those long pontoons under them that they can land on the water. Yeah. Boring. It, okay. The <laughs> other kind. Maybe to you, Gus. <laughs> <laughs> the other site kind of seaplane is referred to as a flying boat where the main source of buoyancy is the fuselage. So it's got like a giant fuselage that floats in the water and acts mm. like a ship's hull in the water. And then the fuselage underside is shaped to allow the water to flow around it. Oh, and most flying boats have like small floats mounted on their wings to help keep them stable. And like your larger seaplanes are going to be flying boats. Like so like the smaller ones, like I said, like single inch propeller, usually float planes. They just kind of float on the regular plane floats on the water. But the um, flying boat will be much bigger typically. I mean, that makes sense. Yeah. And there's some uh, like there's a subcategory of amphibious ones that can take off and land both on land and water. We kind of asked, like, we kind of, like, joked about it, like, you know, well, when did the first, you know, seaplane come about? And, you know, this is, this is the thing that really got me started thinking about doing this episode. So we looked into it, and the patent for the first flying machine with a boat hull and retractable landing gear was actually filed in 1876. The patent predates airplanes. That's what I was going to say, which is before airplanes. So was this an early patent troll who was just like, <laughs> all right, one day, one day yeah. I'm going to sue everyone who invents just, this. He's, he's also patenting the, the, uh, the rocket boat and, the <laughs> <laughs> and computers. Yeah. yeah. Oddly enough from East Texas. Uh, no, no, no. Uh, <laughs> uh, I was, his, his, he was a guy from France. His name was Alphonse Pinot. And France was actually like a really big aviation powerhouse in the early days of aviation. They still are. There's actually, and we've talked about this on Black Box Down before. There's a lot of French terms that are still used in aviation today. And, you know, English is the international language of aviation, but it was almost French. Uh, the French really had a lot, of, uh, a lot of pull in aviation, especially shaping it in the early days. That's really interesting. I wonder why, like, because I know like in cooking, 
France dominated for a long time because they were obsessive about writing everything down, like their processes. So mm-hmm. they were like the first one, or, you know, so they kind of laid the groundwork for everything. I wonder if that's related, you know, at all. Yeah, I think most, when, when aviation was in its early days, I think most countries viewed it as like an oddity or something that would never yeah. really evolve into something commercially viable. But I think the French really saw the value in it. And they like really leaned into the innovation and really studying aviation. Then a couple of world wars came along and kind of set them back a few years. Uh, and that's, <laughs> yeah. that's when the United States was able to uh, take the lead. Like most things that you, the United States has taken the lead on. Yeah. So, you know, this patent was filed in 1876, but uh, it wasn't until 1901 that the first seaplane was actually built. Uh, it was built by an Austrian guy named Wilhelm Kress, who named the plane Drachenflieger. Ooh. Beautiful, beautiful language. I looked it up. It translates to kite flyer. Okay. Huh. It was what year? 1901. So this is before, before the Wright the, brothers. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, spoiler, it never actually flew. Mm. Uh, <laughs> he built it. Uh, he, and he originally wanted to have an engine specifically built for this uh, seaplane. And he calculated that he needed 37 kilowatts of power out of this engine. But it was too expensive. <laughs> so he just oh. got like a car engine. But the car engine only had an output of 22 kilowatts. And it weighed twice as much as Cress's calculations allowed for. I can so, see the problem. Right. <laughs> I'm not an engineer. but It's like, hmm, the engine's twice as heavy and outputs not enough power. Uh, hmm. All they could do is uh, test it by taxiing on the water. It was great at taxiing. They just couldn't get it into the air. So he built a boat. <laughs> <laughs> a boat he with built, wings. He built a boat that made a lot of big promises. <laughs> <laughs> I think m- maybe, you know, the, the thought was they could use this proof of concept to then develop an engine that would uh-huh. work. He probably, you know, used it to show it off and be like, hey, if you give us some money, we can build the engine we need and actually make it this thing in the air. However, unfortunately, in October of 1901, while taxiing, he swerved suddenly to avoid oh. something on the lake and uh, the Drachenflieger capsized and sank. Oh. So That's never actually bummer. got it into the air. He had, had all the calculations down, knew what he needed, just didn't have the money to make it happen. Did it, Has anyone taken those calculations and applied them and actually now and built up the same thing to see if it would have worked i think it would have uh i'll, I'll you know on we please follow us on social media at black box down pod you know we post lots of supplemental images uh and whatnot and i'll post an image of the drachenflieger that uh, there's actually a photo of it i don't think so chris but i think it would have actually flown hmm. it looks like a weird airplane from, you know, uh, the early 1900s. So I, uh, I don't see why it wouldn't have. Then here's just since the Wright brothers, inv- I guess they invented flying, right, in the traditional sense, right? But they didn't invent the first airplane then. If, they, if that guy invented one but just didn't get, have the money to build it. The Drachenflieger was sort of the friendster of airplanes. Yeah. <laughs> 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 well, it's... Even some of that stuff is pretty debatable. Like uh, there was a, like I said, there was a lot of French innovation, and they were really close. They, had, you know, they had some glider flights as well, and they had some, some tests that were proving very promising. So there was a lot of innovation happening simultaneously around the world at the time, okay. and this was just one of the other possibilities. You know, we could be talking about the Drachenflieger, like it could be the more common, well-known name today in another reality. Mm. Yeah, it probably seems like some. It, it, I think you're right. If if memory serves, weren't like lots of different 
countries working on flight. And so it could be like somebody took his designs and refined them or, you know, kind of, right. You know, iterated on them. And then we got sort of what would become a seaplane. Yeah. I mean, exactly. And so, you know, even like the, the, the first flight and all of that stuff, there was a lot of innovation happening at the same time. Yeah. Uh, let's, we, we, we can say, we can say that. So, but it, it would be wild to me if the first flight had been a seaplane. Like they were like, no, not even, not even taking off on the ground. Let's do it on the water. Like, you know, let's, uh, let's do this. And then it kind of makes sense. You know, there's tons of water all around the world. Yeah. Uh, there's no buildings you have to worry about avoiding or no mountains or anything. It's just flat ocean or There's surprisingly lakes. a lot of water and not a lot of, uh, um, runways. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But very true. Why aren't all planes seaplanes? <laughs> this seems like a no-brainer. Put some skids on all of them. Yeah. Can you imagine though, if like you're flying into Austin, <laughs> you gotta like land on Lake Travis and then you know <laughs> <laughs> drive all the way back down into town. All these stand-up paddle boarders are just flying out of <laughs> while you're landing, yeah. just flying up in the air. So eventually, several years later, uh, March 28th, 1910, a Frenchman named Henri Fabry. Uh, I'm butchering all these names. I'm, I'm, I apologize to all our French I'm listeners. glad y'all do that on your podcast, too. We <laughs> just destroy beautiful languages. I'm, I'm trying. <laughs> so that's when the first successful powered seaplane actually flew. He did not name that seaplane, though. It's commonly referred to as the Hydravian. Hydravian? I don't know. It's probably like a portmanteau of like hydro and avion, like water and airplane. It only flew for about 500 meters. Uh, and was successfully flown three more times that day. Oh. And within a week, he had flown it about three and a half miles in total. But <laughs> a little over a year later, on April 12th of 1911, the Hydravion crashed and was damaged beyond repair. And there were no more built. Oh. Uh, yeah, the crashed pieces were collected in 1922. Then it was restored and displayed at the French Air and Space Museum. Which lets me what makes me wonder, like... That they just leave this wreckage out there for 11 years, and then eventually someone's uh, like, hey, you know what? We should clean that up. Let's put that in a museum. <laughs> the, prop, the property owner is just furious this whole time. <laughs> yeah, that happens with ships all the time. They just leave boats. They'll wreck them. Uh, there's, there's one off Galveston. There's one uh, off the coast of Oregon. They just crash them and leave them. They're like, ah. And, and the local municipality is like, we're not going to pay to get rid of that. Well, yeah, that's like underwater. You know, this crashed plane, like this was a, the first <laughs> successful powered seaplane. Well, I guess maybe it crashed underwater. I, I don't know. I, I assumed it crashed on land, but they just kind of left it there. Yeah, what, what was the name of it? Oh, you didn't have a name, but it's referred to as the Hydravion. And there's a photo of it as well. I'll post that on social media, too. The, the guts on these pilots, too. I, I don't know if y'all have ever talked about it, but these early pilots are just like the courage is something I do not possess. It's insane because like we we get a little freaked out by covering ships because if you shipwreck, there's there's animals in the water that can eat you. But up in the air, there's only one way to go. And it, it just oh, it, it, pterodactyls. <laughs> Whoa, good point. Good point. <laughs> well, the the scary thing uh, about the Hydravion is that the pilot had to sit at the very top of the plane. He sat basically <laughs> on top of the wing with oh. the spinning propeller right behind him. So it's like if he stretched or leaned too far back, uh, it's uh, right into the propeller. That looks like he he's just he just there's a plane and he's just like I'm gonna sit on top. Right. He looks like he's fishing. Yeah. <laughs> So it, it was definitely, you're right. Uh, it either took a lot of courage or a lot of stupidity uh, to be one of these people who 
flew, especially in these early days. I actually, I, whenever we recorded that other episode of Black Cross Town, I was, I was doing a little research on um, seaplanes. And, and I think it was reading that a lot of early plane stuff was done partly so that if the, if it failed, they'd land in the water and not die. Uh, that, like that testing sense. out stuff. Yeah, like we said, no mountains, no hills. Yeah. Super easy. Just I guess nice. also, yeah, you you can like do a a swan dive into the water. Yeah. Gosh, and these planes, I'm looking at this picture. They are, I, it looks like he is sitting on a kite, basically, yeah. with some feet. Yeah. And, and, and off, you know, not for a podcast or anything, uh, I, on social media, I sent Brian this image. This is not a seaplane related, but uh, I sent him an image of this woman who was the second woman ever to fly an airplane solo in the world. And uh, she did so on a plane she built herself in her house with her husband's help. Wow. And she had no flight training, built a plane, and was the second woman ever to fly. So uh, there was a lot of uh, enthusiasm uh, amongst some circles for aviation in those early days, but v- very little safety. Kind of like 3D printing. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> it feels like, yeah, but kind of, kind of like uh, driverless cars. Are yeah. Today. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. With HelloFresh, you get farm fresh pre-portioned ingredients and seasonal recipes delivered right to your doorstep. Skip trips to the grocery store and count on HelloFresh to make home cooking easy, fun, and affordable. That's why it's America's number one meal kit. Do you have a pack schedule this fall? Well, HelloFresh has meals covered with a weekly selection of 30 plus recipes and 70 plus convenience items. All of them delivered right to your door. Uh, now more than ever, we're all looking for ways to save money. Uh, in fact, HelloFresh is 25% less expensive than takeout and is even cheaper than grocery shopping too. Plus one of the things I love, you get exactly what you need. You don't end up buying too much or wasting anything. It's exactly what you need. Nothing extra that you have to worry about using in time or worry about it going bad. It's boom, it's ready right in front of you. Uh, I love HelloFresh. It saves a ton of time. I think it's a lot of fun uh, to put these recipes together. I'm not a chef by any stretch of the imagination. Even I can follow these super simple instructions. They got pictures. That way you know if what you're doing looks like how it's supposed to look. Easy. It's all right there. Go to HelloFresh.com slash BlackBoxDown16 and use code BlackBoxDown16 for 16 free meals across seven boxes and three free gifts. Uh, that's HelloFresh.com slash BlackBoxDown16. That's BlackBoxDown in the number one and the number six. Uh, promo code BlackBoxDown16. You get 16 free meals across seven boxes and three free gifts. It's all thanks to HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit. Did you notice that big tech companies today are masquerading as privacy companies? Just fix your privacy settings, turn off app tracking, and you're all good. Right, you know, we're supposed to believe that big bad tech wolf now has turned into our sweet grandma. Uh, Big tech literally feeds on your information. Sure, maybe they'll release a feature now and then that does some good, but collecting and selling off your data is in big tech's nature. They can't stop themselves from looking at what you do online. Uh, The better to see you with, my dear. So to protect myself against big tech's prying eyes, I use ExpressVPN. When you use the ExpressVPN app on your computer or phone, you're hiding your unique IP address. Websites cannot use that address to find out your real location or track what you do online. And on top of that, ExpressVPN encrypts and reroutes 100% of your online activity. So your internet provider, Wi-Fi admin, even hackers cannot see it. Best part is how easy it is to use. Just takes one click to protect all your devices. One ExpressVPN subscription covers up to five devices at the same time. So you can protect, you know, your entire family too. Uh, that's why ExpressVPN is rated the number one by CNET, Wire, TechRadar, countless others. So today's the day. Get the VPN that I trust to protect my privacy online when big, bad tech is at the door. Visit expressvpn.com slash blackboxdown. You can get an extra three months free on a one-year package. That's expressvpn.com slash blackboxdown. expressvpn.com slash blackboxdown to learn more. 
Epic Worlds await on HBO Max. You can stream groundbreaking originals like the highly anticipated House of the Dragon, which takes place 200 years before the events of Game of Thrones, uh, and the HBO sci-fi saga Westworld. I watch both of those shows. Then watch must-see Max originals like Pretty Little Liars, Original Sin, a dark coming-of-age horror tinged drama mystery, and the newest season of unfiltered animated series Harley Quinn. Harley Quinn and Poison Ivy return to Gotham as the new power couple of DC villainy. Get ready for all the mayhem and madness. Discover award-winning series, heartfelt comedies, gripping documentaries, timeless film classics like Goodfellas and more. All the best entertainment, all in one place, HBO Max. Go to hbomax.com to discover all this and more. But anyway, eventually, uh, in March of 1912, the first hydro airplane competition was held in, of course, Monaco, featuring several aircraft. This led to the first scheduled seaplane passenger service using a five-seat Sanchez Besa in August of 1912. And the French Navy ordered its first float plane in, also in 1912. Meanwhile, on this side of the Atlantic, on May 10th of 1912, Glenn Martin flew a homemade seaplane in California. Again, with the homemade planes. Mm. Flew a homemade seaplane in California, setting records for distance and time. And then from 1911 to 1912, Francois Denout constructed the first seaplane with the fuselage forming the hull so like we talked about mm. and its first successful flight was april 13th 1912 so they're starting to put pieces together they're starting to figure this out like oh we yeah. got a little more confidence about it and then throughout 1910 and 1911 american glenn curtis developed his float plane into the curtis model d land plane which used larger central float and pontoons and he combined the floats uh with wheels and made the first amphibian flights february 1911 it was a awarded the first Collier Trophy for U.S. flight achievement. So now making the jump to amphibious planes. Yeah. His experiments resulted in the 1913 Model E and Model F, and the U.S. Navy used his planes to test landings and takeoffs from ships, uh, which I guess makes sense. If you can't land it on the ship, you can just put it in the water instead. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah, really cheap aircraft carriers. (laughs) (laughs) You just use the ocean as an aircraft carrier. Just widen that margin for error a little bit. (laughs) Yeah. In Britain, Captain Edward Wakefield and Oscar Nosipelius began to explore the feasibility of flight from water in 1908. And by the end of 1911, they both had aircraft capable of flight from water using England's largest lake, uh, Windermere. Nosipelius's flight was short-lived as the aircraft crashed into the lake. Uh, Wakefield's pilot, however, taking advantage of a light northerly wind, successfully took off and flew at a height of 50 feet to Ferry Nab, where he made a wide turn and returned for a perfect landing on the lake's surface. Oh. So everyone's kind of like starting to up the ante, you know, making making progress with these. So in 1913, the Daily Mail newspaper put up a 10,000 pound prize for the first nonstop aerial crossing of the Atlantic. And equivalent, I did, I ran an inflation calculator. That's equivalent today of 805,000 pounds or $945,000. Whoa. Whoa. That's, that's a, that's not, that's like not a prize. That's like a lottery winning, <laughs> like. Yeah, it's like, it's a lot of money. This is this is back when newspapers sort of actively made the news too. Like, we're <laughs> yeah. gonna let's fund this stunt and and see what happens. Yeah. Some would say the Daily Mail still makes up the news to this day. <laughs> it absolutely, seems like a thing the Daily Mail would have done. Yes, absolutely. So after this prize was announced, American businessman Rodman Wanamaker—they don't make last names like they used to anymore. No. <laughs> He became determined that the prize should go to an American aircraft and commissioned uh, Curtis Aeroplane and the motor company to design and build an aircraft capable of making this flight. Curtis's development of the Flying Fish Flying Boat in 1913 brought him into contact with John Cyril Port, a retired Royal Navy lieutenant, aircraft designer, and test pilot 
who was to become an influential British aviation pioneer. And they recognized that many of the early accidents were attributable to poor understanding of handling while in contact with the water. So they started developing practical hull designs to make the transatlantic crossing possible. So the people early on was yeah, getting at people were focusing too much on the airplane and not focusing enough on the boat. I was like, hey, you know what? Let's focus a little more on the boat side of things to make these <laughs> uh, uh, more stable. So Wanamaker's commission built on Glenn Curtis's previous development and experience with the Curtis Model F for the U.S. Navy, which rapidly resulted in the America uh, designed under port supervision following his study and rearrangement of the flight plan. The aircraft was a biplane design with two bay unstaggered wings of unequal span with two pusher inline engines mounted side by side above the fuselage in the interplane gap. So biplane with two engines mounted next to each other. Biplanes are the things that's, that's the plane that Snoopy flew, right? Yes. Okay. <laughs> All right. Good. good. It's like I'm with you. Two wings, one wing at the bottom and one wing on the top. Yeah. Not really used anymore. Wingtip pontoons were attached directly below the lower wings near the tips uh, the design resembled Curtis's earlier flying boats, uh, but was built considerably larger because they needed to carry enough fuel to cover the 1,100 miles to cross the Atlantic. The three crew members were accommodated in a fully enclosed cabin. Remember, at this time, lots of times they they sit on top of the plane. So over this <laughs> one, they're like, let's go ahead and build a cabin. Let's, let's, let's let everyone sit inside. Carl's crazy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Trials of the America began June 23rd, 1914 with Port also as chief test pilot. After some testing and fixing problems found with the aircraft, preparations for the crossing resumed. And while the craft was found to handle heavily on takeoff and required longer takeoff distances, they, you know, they thought it was going to work. So they set a date. They you know, circled a date on the calendar. They're like, we're going to go on the next full moon, August 5th, 1914, because uh, obviously they're going to need lots of time. Mm-hmm. They need you know, the lights at night, so the full moon would work. And Port was going to pilot the America with George Hallett as his co-pilot and mechanic. However... <laughs> Uh-oh. I don't know how uh, good you all are with dates. Something happened July 28th, 1914, before they were able to take off. Hmm. Uh, Could it be World, World War, War I? One? <laughs> World War I started. <laughs> so they were unable to do it because World War I started, what, like a week and a half before <laughs> they were supposed to make their crossing. And Port rejoined the Navy as a member of the Royal Naval Air Service and convinced the Admiralty of the potential of flying boats. It, it'd be funny if they had taken off and they were crossing... And then they saw World War One, and they just turned around and went back to the U.S. <laughs> we got <laughs> enough they, fuel. They, nope, we'll give us a couple of years, and then we'll come back and join in this. I like that they had to time it around a full moon, too, just to make sure they had as much light as possible. <laughs> Imagine how scary that is. You yes, know, like, yes. <laughs> it sounds terrifying. You got to deal with you got to deal with werewolves too. I mean. <laughs> There's a lot of factors there. And I'll go ahead. I'll, I'll, I'll put uh, on social media. I'll also post a photo of the America. There is a photo of these. I love all these old timey photos. It's, uh, it's about as scary as you would imagine. Uh, and you would definitely want to make sure you're crossing on a full moon. And wait, the, the prize though. What are, who, who got the prize? Did someone ever pay up? Well, no, the, the war started. So they had to set everything aside uh, and deal with that. I think the, the prize became... Ancillary. Everyone had other things to focus but on. But someone did eventually fly. <laughs> so. so actually, I'm, I'm look, I, I looked it up. The first nonstop transatlantic flight finally happened in June of 1919. It was flown by John Alcock and Arthur Brown, who were uh, British. Uh, they did it in a traditional plane, not a seaplane. Wow. Uh, and uh, Winston Churchill 
uh, presented them with the prize. Oh. So, yeah, they did get the prize given to them by Winston Churchill. Uh, but it was eventually happened in 1919 in a conventional plane, not on a seaplane. Okay. Oh, I, I learned something today. So, anyway, World War I started. Uh, the British Admiralty commandeered the America and another Curtis seaplane. And then they ordered 12 more similar aircraft, most of them being Model H-4s. These planes, of course, ended up having several problems. They were underpowered. Their hulls were weak. They had poor handling. Mm. Uh, one flying boat pilot, Major Theodore Douglas Hallam, wrote that they were comic machines weighing well under two tons with two comic engines giving when they functioned 180 horsepower and comic control being nose heavy with engines on and tail heavy in a glide. Uh, the dude loved the word comic. Yeah. <laughs> also, I don't know if he fully understood its application. Yeah, <laughs> also... Like- 180 horsepower is pretty beefy. I'm I'm a little shocked they were able to get, get that much power out of uh, engines uh, uh, over 100 years ago. Yeah. It's like those muscle cars in the 70s. Man, off the line, they could just haul some booty. Yeah. Uh, for, just for frame of reference, like modern, like a single engine Cessna, you know, like a, a small, dinky, you know, single engine propeller plane that you would see. Those are typically about 160 horsepower, maybe 180 horsepower if they're a little newer. So they they were getting decent power back then. They probably just poured tons of fuel into it. They probably yeah. just made up for inefficiencies <laughs> by just like, let's burn more gas. <laughs> the emissions were terrible on Yeah. It. Curtis, along with other manufacturers on both sides, developed more seaplanes, and many were actually used in dogfights. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, I wish there was footage of that. I would love to see what that looked like. In September of 1919, the British company Supermarine started operating the first flying boat service in the world from Wollstone to... Le Havre in France. I wanted to say France just because of saying Le Havre. Like my brain was like, no, say it the other way. In 1923, the first successful commercial flying boat service was introduced with flights to and from the Channel Islands. After frequent appeals by the industry for subsidies, the government decided that nationalization was necessary and ordered five aviation companies to merge to form the state-owned Imperial Airways of London. Imperial Airways of London became the first international flag-carrying British airline providing flying boat passenger and mail transport links between Britain, uh, South Africa, and India. I love that even back then, airlines had financial issues and the government oh, yeah. had to step in. All right, all right. Yeah, here you go. We'll bail you out. You got us next time, right? No? All right. It's like uh, Lucy pulling out the football from Charlie Brown. Like, this has been going on 110 years, or 100 years, and governments are still like, okay, we'll bail you out again. Literally since they've been invented. Yeah. <laughs> By the time World War II started, the military value of flying boats was well recognized, uh, and every country bordering on water operated them in a military capacity at the outbreak of the war. They were used in various tasks from anti-submarine patrol, air-to-sea rescue, gunfire spotting for battleships, uh, and to you know rescue downed airmen and operate scout aircraft over the Pacific and Atlantic. And of course, they were also used to attack and sink submarines. Yeah, submarines were a huge uh, U-boats in World War One. We we talk about those all the time. Like uh, there were a ton of disasters because of U-boats. But I wonder in aviation that that probably as awful as these world wars are. I'm sure it sped up the innovation because oh, everyone yeah. wanted to you know use them to to kill the other side as efficiently as possible. It's awful how. Uh, how much war advances technology. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, you know, even, you know, planes, I think, you know, uh, you hear stories about, you know, when World War I first started, you know, 
planes were just used for reconnaissance. They didn't even have guns on them. You know, enemy aviators would fly by each other and wave because there were no guns. And then they started carrying their pistols to shoot at each other. And, <laughs> and then it very quickly became, let's mount machine guns on these things and shoot at each other. You know, war really starts, you know, making those things uh, happen. It really accelerates the timeline for a lot of that yeah. innovation. That happened because somebody got back from a reconnaissance flight and their superior officer's like, what did you, what do you mean you waved at him? Bring your gun next time. <laughs> but actually, if I remember right, at first, I think they would take rocks and bricks with them and throw them at each other. What? And then they would take their, like their revolvers and try to shoot at each other. And then it was like, all right, let's just put a machine gun on these. Yeah. It, it even, even sort of before that with, with uh, naval technology, like there were proto submarines, like in the revolutionary war, uh, in wow. the American civil war, there was the first, the Confederacy executed the first basically attack from a, a submarine on a, a, a Northern, a union ship but the idea was they just stuck a bunch, basically a barrel full of gunpowder at the end of a stick and ignited it. And yes, it blew a hole in the ship, but it also oh. blew up the submarine as well. Oh, yeah, that's uh, that's not good if you uh, <laughs> for, <laughs> for wanting to reuse it. It's like we'll trade a submarine for a hole in the boat. Yeah, it's also like uh, I feel like everyone should have seen that coming. Yeah, <laughs> a, a long pole is never a good idea. Maybe if the pole had been longer. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so after World War II, the use of flying boats started to rapidly decline for a few reasons. And the ability to land on water became less of an advantage because of an increase of the number of and the length of land-based runways during World War II. So again, war spurned on the construction of all these runways and it became like, oh, well, we don't need to land on the water anymore. There's runways everywhere. Mm. Also, as the speed and range of land-based aircraft increased, the commercial competitiveness of flying boats diminished. Uh, the design compromised aerodynamic efficiency and speed uh, in order to uh, you know, accomplish the feat of waterborne takeoff and landing. And they couldn't compete with new civilian jet aircraft like the de Havilland Comet and the Boeing 707. Around this time, the largest flying boat was made. It was the Hughes H4 Hercules, uh, commonly known as the Spruce Goose. Oh, that yeah. has two good names. <laughs> <laughs> it was huge. It had eight engines and was made almost entirely out of birch wood. Whoa. It had the largest wingspan of any aircraft that had ever flown until the scaled composites uh, straddle launch first flew in 2019. Um, the wingspan was 320 feet and 11 inches. Oh, so my gosh. That's, you know, what a football field is 100 yards, which is 300 feet. So the wingspan was greater than a football field. It's just absolutely massive. I can't even imagine that. Like So uh, like a Boeing 747, which, you know, people are pretty familiar with. is uh -huh. a really huge plane. The wingspan on that is 211 feet. So the wingspan on the Spruce Goose was 109 feet Larger, like 50% more. Oh, my God. That's just asking to get one of those wings sheared off. Yeah. And it was made out of wood. <laughs> yes. I'm not going to fly in anything made out of wood. I'm sorry. <laughs> the development cost of the plane reached $23 million, which today is about $213 million. It was intended to be a transatlantic flight transport for use during World War II, but they didn't finish it in time for the war. Uh, it only ever made one brief flight, November 2nd, 1947. And the aircraft is now displayed at the Evergreen Aviation and Space Museum in McMinnville, Oregon. Uh, I'll, I'll see if I find a photo of that as well and uh, and put that in the uh, on our social media. And it was made entirely out of wood? 
You said almost entirely out of wood. Obviously, they couldn't make wooden wheels, so you know they had to make yeah. some compromises. But yeah, it was almost made entirely out of wood. If you've ever seen, it was made like I said, it was made by the Hughes Company, like Howard Hughes. Uh-huh. Uh, if you've ever seen um, that Leonardo DiCaprio movie, The Aviator, they they talk about that and they deal with that kind of towards the end of that film. The only way I know that name, the Spruce Goose, is Mr. Burns referenced it on The Simpsons, right? Yeah, when right. he was pretending to be late stage Howard Hughes, you know, with the long toenails and the and the uh, the hair. Yeah, he he talked about the Spruce, like hop in the Spruce Goose, and it's just a little model he's holding because he's, I will he's say- insane. I think in The Simpsons, if I remember right, he calls it the spruce moose. Yes, you're right. <laughs> to make it like legally distinct from the spruce goose. You know, it's like close. You know what he's getting at, but not quite. It's so funny. That's like whenever I learn something new and it rings a bell, whether it's a classic a movie or literature, it's always I learned about it first on The Simpsons. Yeah, I was born in 1978, uh, but I feel like this, the, some of that early Simpsons captures a lot and makes a lot of references to things that happened in the early to mid 70s so i learned a lot of stuff that happened right before i was born that way (laughs) (laughs) right before you got to the party right yeah it's like oh yeah right you know uh disco and uh you know whatever weird references anything about like the carter or the ford administration like oh right i I learned that from the simpsons (laughs) so Lots of modern civilian aircraft have float plane variants, you know, usually as utility transports to lakes or remote areas. I think you see a lot of these like in Alaska or the brush or like out, you know, kind of wilderness areas. And many of these are offered as third party modifications under a supplemental type certificate. Uh, although there's several manufacturers that build float planes from scratch and a few that continue to build flying boats. Lots of older flying boats remain in service for firefighting duty. And uh, there was a, an airline called Chalks Ocean Airway that operated a fleet of Grumman Mallards in passenger service until service was suspended after a crash in December 19th, 2005. They flew out of Miami in southern Florida, out to the Bahamas and, you know, all those islands there in the Caribbean. And it makes sense. Like, that's kind of like perfect use case for a seaplane. It's like the Caribbean, southern Florida, like mm, lots of yeah. small islands. You don't necessarily have to land on a runway. I think that's like... Perfect case, uh, perfect use case scenario for a seaplane. I do think of Alaska like delivering, you know, uh, like transports to very isolated communities that don't, mm-hmm. you know, that roads won't have or delivering cocaine. To- <laughs> <laughs> it's funny you say you, you say that, that Chalks Ocean Airways that I just mentioned, their planes were used in old Miami Vice episodes to show like yes. smuggling. And, you know, it was always the, their seaplanes that were used in uh, Miami Vice to show like <laughs> cocaine being brought into Miami. So it's fun. It's really funny that you say that. And also actually in reality, Chalks Ocean Airways gained a notoriety back during Prohibition because they would do um, bootlegging between the Caribbean and the United States. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, we and we did a whole episode on Ship It's the Fan about narco subs, which are oh. these homemade, uh, not really submarines usually, but they float just at the surface and they're very, and they paint them ocean colors. So they're hard to detect. But yeah, the, you talk about some genius level engineering and they're making this stuff in the jungle. It is incredible. Wow. That, yeah, that's nuts. I, I would not get in one of those. No, no. <laughs> and purely water-based seaplanes uh, have been largely supplanted by amphibious aircraft. Um, like, you just get a lot more flexibility. You yeah. know, seaplanes can only take off and land on the water and with very little or no waves. Uh, and, of course, they have trouble in extreme weather. 
And the size of waves a given design can withstand depends on, you know, the aircraft size, their hull or float design, its weight. So there's a lot more that needs to be taken into account with these uh, and limits their operational days. How, how do amphibious planes get from water to, say, runways typically? Like, you can't just drive them on the road, right? <laughs> I mean, well... The way they typically work, the way specifically an amphibious plane will typically work is when it's in the water, the landing gear gets like folded up into the sides of the plane. Mm -hmm. Uh, Then if they're going to get out onto land, they'll, you know, they'll go to a ramp that's big enough for them or like, you know, like a boat launching ramp. Then as they get close to the ramp, they lower their landing gear into the water, then continue going onto the ramp. And then, you know, the wheels hit the ramp and they can taxi out of the water onto the land. Okay. Or I guess, I guess the other way. They could just fly to the runway. <laughs> right. Yeah. Then, off. of yeah. course, they could also, uh, you know, land on the runway instead. But, you know, they will, they, 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 there is a lot of value in that flexibility to be mm-hmm. amphibious. Like they can load their passengers on land and then go get in the water to take off. Or, you know, if the weather's bad and they can't take off on the water, they can go switch over to the land. Yeah. So I mean, it is good that they have that flexibility. And I think a lot of that design is really cool. But honestly, it's kind of scary. <laughs> well, I, I read. Or I don't know if I read or saw a quote about um, amphibious planes, and they're like, "Well, it's not a good plane, and it's not a good boat, but it's the only thing that can do it all." You know, it's right? Like, yeah. It, and it, I mean, it's just so like has so much utility in that respect. Yeah, it's like a seven out of ten. Yeah. in all areas. Yeah, if you're lucky. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a slow boat. It's a slow plane. <laughs> it can't go in very rough water and it can't go in very rough air. It's like all the limitations of both craft combined into one. Yeah. Oh, that's true. Yeah. Is it limited as an airplane? Like it can't, there's, there's weather it can't fly through? Not especially any more than a typical airplane, but I mean, you do have to be careful, especially on takeoff. You know, they want to, you got it, but so you have to be careful on takeoff, but you can always point yourself into the wind if you need to. However, that may point you in an unoptimal way against the waves. So you kind of have to balance, you know, what, how are you hitting the waves versus how are you hitting the wind? Yeah. Um, You're basically dealing with two fluids that might be moving in different directions, but the wind typically does move the waves unless there's wake or activity by other boats. I wonder if that's a special kind of pilot too, who, who does seaplanes versus just, you know, a very traditional uh, airplane pilot. Yeah, they're they're different certificates that you would get. So you either get uh, a license for land planes or seaplanes, or of course you can get both. So typically most pilots will get their certificate for land planes and then add on seaplane as like additional training. Mm. Okay. I think it is possible to get seaplane training without land training, but I don't know why you would do that. This begs the question, since you just got your pilot's license are you gonna get your boating pilot's license it's funny you ask i've looked into it um there's not any places in austin where you can get a seaplane um (laughs) certificate uh but there are schools you can go to uh and you you go for like a week or two uh and you get your seaplane rating if you are assuming you already have your pilot's license yeah Um, there's lots of places in florida that do it i think there's a place up here in texas i think there's a place by temple that'll do it as well which is not too far from Austin. So I've thought about it. And there's there's no plans to currently, but I really have thought about it. That'd be cool. Yeah, is there any is there any kind of attraction to it, Gus, as a, you know, like, oh, that's something different that I that you'd like to try? 
yeah, I'm getting old, Brian. And it's like, <laughs> I want new experiences. I want to try something new. I want to, I want to be in a boat on the water. I'm, I'm sorry. I want to be in a plane on the water, not crashing. <laughs> no, I, I get it. Like I, I've started running, so I, I totally get that. That's not new for me. It is. <laughs> uh, well, I, I, I do feel like it's like in terms of exploration and or just going places. You, there's there's so much utility in it, right? Because you could just you can land just about anywhere. There's a river or a lake or an ocean. Yeah, I think I, I just think it's a. Uh, it's cool. I think, you know, it's it's definitely not near these days, not nearly as useful as a land based airplane. I, I don't know. I, I I like seaplanes. I think they're really cool. But honestly, I am a little scared of them <laughs> at the same time. It does feel like if you live in, I don't know, a swampy area or somewhere by the coast. To me, I would think that that's a little bit of a comfort blanket. Like, yeah. OK, well, if things go to hell. I, I can just swerve off to the left and land somewhere. Right. And that's really, you know, like we said, that's really where they're used for the most part these days, like Alaskan and Canadian wilderness or like operators will work between islands like in the Caribbean or the Maldives. You know, that, those places, it makes sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, but really, most other places, like I said, in Austin, I don't know where you would land. Um, you could. I, yeah, I don't know where you like We have a couple <laughs> lakes outside of town. I guess you could land there. I think actually I saw a couple of years ago, I saw an image of someone who had landed a seaplane out uh, by Hula Hut. And they had what? just like, yeah, taxied up there and ate uh. and then like took off. Because, you know, there's there's water there. There's a lake. Yeah. You, you I guess you don't see it very often around here. No. That would be so cool. You're just drinking a margarita and then a plane lands <laughs> by the right. Like that's that's going to make the evening. <laughs> yeah. All right. But that's about it for uh, for seaplanes. Uh, like I said, give us a follow on social media. There's a, these planes look absolutely nuts. I'll post images of them. If you give us a follow at blackboxdownpod.com. I, I have a question. Yeah. In terms of like the cost, if you just was like looking for a plane, how, how much more are regular plane or le- how much less are regular planes versus like a seaplane or an amphibious plane? Like, are, are they a bad value if you just are looking for a, an airplane? So I, I don't know for certain. I'm looking it up right now as you ask. Uh, I see there's a there's a seaplane a you can buy that's uh, fairly new. It's um it's called the Icon A5. Mm-hmm. Uh brand new. It's a carbon fiber seaplane. Brand new, it costs about $250,000. And this is this is a relatively small plane. It seats two. You can get like a small Cessna, like a comparable single engine Cessna. Uh is actually more expensive than this. Uh-huh. But you could buy, but it's also a little bigger, a little more utility. I don't know like an apples to apples comparison. A brand new Cessna. Uh, off the line, I want to say it's like four hundred fifty thousand dollars. Okay. Uh, uh, but you know, it's it's also that would seats four. This icon seats two. Uh, so you're not quite comparing apples to apples. I think you could probably buy a brand new single engine land plane for a, around this, maybe a little more than this. Someone's saying I, I looked somewhere to get one for fifty thousand dollars. That doesn't seem right. Uh, I'm talking brand new. Uh, okay. If you're looking, yeah, if you're looking <laughs> used, I mean, that's a whole other thing. You can run. A, the gamut of prices on that, depending on uh, how airworthy something is or how much work it needs. Mm. Yeah, I just found one on Craigslist for twenty thousand, but <laughs> cash only. Got to pick it up today. Yeah, you got to go uh, meet him uh, under the Congress Bridge by the bats. <laughs> he says it was adult owned, so that's that's promising. <laughs> a little old lady just drove it to and from church on Sunday, and that was just it. rubbed it with a diaper in her garage. Yep. <laughs> 
Uh, all right. Well, that's it for uh, this episode. Again, uh, give uh, uh, give Brian's podcast uh, a shot. It's a uh, ship hits the fan. It's available wherever you listen to podcasts. Wherever you listen to this podcast right now, just go look for Ship Hits the Fan. Uh, it's right there. It's really funny. It's a great, great, great podcast. Thanks for having me. This was a lot of fun. And if you know of an incident you'd like to see uh, us cover together, uh, let us know. I've looked. I haven't found anything that stands out to me, but maybe the audience knows something, something involving planes and boats. Uh, let us know on social media. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks for listening, everyone. Bye.